Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Your Project Shepherd Construction Podcast. Our goal here is to teach you the right way to go about building or remodeling your home. And today's episode is going to be about building performance failures as it relates to insulation. We've been uh, touching on some different uh, points of performance failures over the last uh, few episodes. Um, I've had Toner with me as a co-host. He is back today. And so we're going to dig into kind of what goes wrong with uh, insulation, kind of talk about the right way to think about insulating your home. And uh, so our, our expert guest for this episode is Shad Wall with First Defense Insulation. That is right, isn't yes, it? Yes, correct. Okay. Make sure I got the company name right. <laughs> so uh, this is Shad's first time with us. Uh, Shad and Toner have worked together a lot. Yeah. I have not worked with Shad. This is my first time meeting him, but I hope to work with him soon. So, Shad, thanks for being here. Thanks a lot, Curtis. Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, kind of what you guys do and how you got into the business and, and kind of what your focus is? Yeah, thanks for having me, everyone. And uh, yeah, my name is Shadrick Wall, originally from Louisiana, moved up here back in 2013. And uh, I've been around in and around the spray foam polyurethane industry for since 1997. I started in an early age, uh, had a, a lot of opportunities from some of my elder friends that I had there back in Louisiana. They kind of got me into the business and I've kind of traveled all over the world from Alaska to China to Poland to, I've always just kind of looked for the opportunities, listen a lot. It's something my grandpa always said, listen more because you got two ears. It makes sense. You only got one mouth, so talk less. Um, but been around the industry, been on as far as the mechanical side. I do a lot of formulating for some of your, some of the more commercially wide polyurethanes here locally out of the Houston area and uh, install as well. Also have a an estimating company down in Nicaragua. So I'm kind of on all different levels as far as vertically integrated inside the polyurethane industry in and around it. But I always was fascinated uh, early on with the building science aspect. Like polyurethane is a really cool product. Have you ever seen it before? It's a liquid, it's spray applied, it swells up, it hardens really fast. That in and of itself was really cool looking. But then I said, man, how does this really fit into the overall dynamic of how a house actually functions and works. Uh, and so, yeah, I spent most of those years through the last couple of decades I've been in the industry really just learning, going to continuing ed classes, always questioning why. Why does something work? Well, why does it not work? Uh, because I got tired of hearing blanket statements thrown across, especially with so many different regions and climate zones that we have across the U.S. Um, people with their blanket statements, and I go, well, let's dig into that a little bit. And that's always fascinating me is the why of something. And so, yeah, early on, I was just, I loved spray foam industry. I mean, spray foam is a product. Um, and then I also, I'm involved heavily with, as far as spray foam, fiberglass, cellulose, all the different products. And then uh, here, like you said earlier, I own a company called First Defense Insulation, which we go into a lot of retro houses, which is kind of, it's funny, me and Toner have known each other for a little over a decade now. And typically we bump heads into problem houses. That's where we kind of initially met. And as soon as I met him, I said, man, this guy really, first of all, he's super intelligent at what he does. And second, I was like, man, I want to, he seems like a guy I could drag some knowledge off of, or at least to try to, to visit. And sure enough, we developed a friendship and then now we get called in a lot of different projects and stuff. So, so if you started 1997, were you like eight years old spraying, spraying, <laughs> spraying right. spray foam in an attic yeah. or it's, what? It's so funny. A lot of the, cause I do a lot of classes with like architects and engineers. And then when they, when I say that across the table, they're like, I thought you were 14 years old across there. I said, no, I, I look young, but I actually just turned 43 this year. So let's see. Working backwards. Yeah. You were still pretty young. As I was do, actually doing spray foam. It was funny. So my best friend in, uh, in high school, he was a little bit older. He'd got a full ride to law school and he was a couple years older. And he said, Hey, look, man, there's, I've got some friends in Alaska and they want to actually go. He wants to go up there and stay for the summer because this is his last hoorah before he's going to just be in, you know, inundated with, with college. He said, hey, man, let's go. And I, this was my 16th going to my 17th birthday. And so when I asked my mom about it, she's, I literally had to get a permission slip to get across the Canadian border as a, a minor. And uh, sure enough, we drove all the way from across the country up the Alcan, the famous, the famous road, and had a, an incredible time learning, looking. Just We stopped in some of the Amish communities and got to see how they... It was just a really cool experience for me as a 16-year-old guy. And going across the Alcan into, into actual Alaska, we stayed in a town called Homer, Alaska, which is about five hours south of Anchorage. Um, he had some friends there that he knew 
And we actually stayed on a Bible college campus for like a hundred dollars a month. Really? Yeah, it was well just incredible. And we got to see see things that I would never, never get to experience again, probably. So well, after we finish this up, we'll talk some more about that because I I love Alaska. I've been there mm-hmm. a bunch, and one of my best friends, kind of like you, uh, spent a lot of time there in, in high school during the summers uh, working there. So before you, before we leave, that, what did you drive there? What were you in? Uh, in a Zuzu single cab with a full. <laughs> I'm not kidding. We loaded up everything. He loaded up everything he had inside the back end. We actually it was funny. I didn't know this across the Canadian border. You can't have guns. You can have them, but they've got to be taken apart. Yeah. So we literally got strip search at the Canadian border for having a gun inside of our, because we forgot, we didn't know you needed to take the guns apart to go right. across the border. But sure enough, that was our wow. first Canadian experience. That was a li- that was not um, oh, a road trip vehicle. That was a, I mean, you did a road trip in it, but that was oh, moving. Especially when you got into Montana. I can't think of the highway that that was that you can go, the speed limit is unlimited. Yeah. So we're going 100 miles an hour. And if you ever know anything about a Zuzu, that thing, <laughs> yeah, I felt like it was going to take off. Yeah. Uh, literally 18 wheelers were coming by us and we felt like we were going to blow off the road. Like <laughs> it was insane, but it was a great time. So, yeah. Well, so speaking of things falling apart, so normally I, I, I was telling, uh, Shad and Toner normally on these episodes, we kind of have it planned out what we're going to talk about, but, um, I kind of wanted to let Toner lead this discussion today for the most part. Um, he had some ideas on, on what he wanted to talk about. And so let's, let's, let's get into it. Toner, what, what, uh. What do you want to start with? Sure. Well, so I, I want to make this kind of a, it's of course an informative podcast, but I almost want to have a public service announcement here because so much of the foam industry, and we're just going to call it that, is misinformation, especially surprising when people still push back against it. Um, there's a lot of folks who believe that foam is the reason why we have a deficiency inside a structure. Almost to a T, it's not the foam that's creating those problems, it's the misapplication of that. And Shad and I spend a lot of our time, of course, talking about projects, but um, he is one of my go-to people as an expert. One of my biggest responsibilities is to avoid expert bias, to, to really start really, really believing my stuff. I always have to question myself. Um, so Shad will get those phone calls from me like, hey, man, am I crazy? Am I wrong? Am I looking at this incorrectly? So we've developed a trust level that I can, you know, Exposed my soft underbelly and go, hey, am, am I okay here? And um, <laughs> took a long time for that to that occur. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's also because there are times where we're pushing things, where we're trying to improve a situation, but there's still inherent risk in that. And I I believe that that risk is calculated to a point where it's it's acceptable. Um, and Shad and I I will go over that, especially in relation relationally to the to the spray foam. Um, so. I would say about 80% of the work that we share are problem projects. They're forensic projects. The other 20% are new projects, um, especially complicated ones. So I'll give you an example. We had a house in River Oaks, a really tight crawl space, needed to be um, sealed off, to disconnected. It can no longer be a ventilated assembly. Really, really shallow, like dangerously shallow. And there's not a lot of people out there. There are plenty of phone guys that would have shoved their own contractors underneath there and said, hey, get this done. Shad won't do that. He'll dig the trench. He'll apply it properly because there's no one that's going to go underneath there and verify if that job was done well. Mm-hmm. So um, we need to be able to do that. He'll also go underneath and record. I always want to say videotape, but I know that's, that's not the right term. You'll just record the underside <laughs> and then show people. There's no more tape. Yeah. That's we just right. we just like to be transparent with the customer. They yeah. to make them feel like they were able to get under there even though they weren't. A lot of videos and pictures. We feel like communication is the key. Doesn't matter how how well you do a job if you can't communicate it back to the customer. Exactly. Done, so. Yep. And and it, there's this is a really small community of people especially at this high end level um of foam. So we've seen things like where people are taking crawl spaces and trying to turn them into condition crawl spaces. Well, um we had a really early project of ours and someone had already come there and done that. So it was an elevated home. They turned it, they paid someone to turn it into a conditioned crawl space. I showed up and I had to remind them, this crawl space is part of your flood plan. It's supposed to flood. You can't have it enclosed. So what did they do? They came through and they just punched a bunch of holes in it for flood vents, but then it negated the fact that it was a conditioned crawl space and it just turned into a bunch of hammered bananas. And <laughs> it was going to be really, they wanted to salvage some pieces throw some pieces away. The wood framing was super wet 
and Shad came through. He was able to save some of the polyurethane. It was the white polyurethane job, too, mm-hmm. um, which was all green by the time you get done with that much moisture moving across it. Um, sealing the seams, rolling the posts. There was a big mid-beam that you had to dig under the mid-beam to get to. Then you had to dry out the wood so you actually closed it back up temporarily, dried out the crawl space, then applied the closed-cell foam. They had a mixture of materials. We had to build a bond break on one of them. And a bond break is when you have a uh, crawl space. And if you're laying inside the crawl space and you look up and you see the original wood floors, not a subfloor, you can't just spray against that, especially a closed cell, because you'll trap, you'll, you'll keep it from expanding and contracting. And, that, and then it'll crack up top or it'll spray right through. So you have to build a bond break, which is even more difficult because now you're trying to put a material that's acting like a subfloor. And you have to friction fit it, then you have to seal on the seams, then you have to close cell foam it. And they wonder why it's a $60,000 job to do a crawl space <laughs> properly. So it's um, amazing the amount of jobs that we come across. Uh, there's not many things that get me, that catch my attention now as, as, as many houses that we typically, when people call me and you're kind of known as the problem guy, like the guy that takes care of stuff, man, the amount of things that you can see each and every day from spray foamers to contractors to homeowners. Uh, it's pretty amazing, actually. So let's speak to that. Why is there on an industry that's been around for 20 years plus, if not 30 years, we've been foaming houses for a long time in the Gulf Coast, all over Texas, all over the United States. Why do you think there's so much misinformation about spray foam, even today? There's, that's such a, that's a, there's a lot of dynamics to that question, but I will, spray foam has been around a long time, actually, in the early 80s, I think is where. Um, it first kind of originated, it still was a lot of the blowing agent stuff have changed quite drastically over the last probably 15 to 20 years. Um, but yeah, it's, I would say a large part of this goes back to early on in my industry or early on in my career in the late, late nineties, education was really important to our manufacturers. Like they weren't just selling foam to any person anywhere that could, if you had a credit card, there was a trust, there was a loyalty there. Uh, UCSC, some of the major ones the players that people don't even know nowadays, um, they required us to have education, like our sprayers to be trained. And I'm not talking about just, you know, go online and fill out this cute little application or something. No, you literally spent days, they would bring you on site, industrial, commercial job sites. They would take you all over the country. This is, I remember that's a lot how I, I actually met a lot of people in my industry is because my manufacturer sent me places to make sure that when they were when they, well, I was going out to represent them as a company because that's what we're doing. We're putting their, their product. Uh, they required and strive for excellence. I would say probably early 2000s. Um, it started when it, when it grew as much as it did when it took over a lot of the fiberglass industry or what was making its way through the industry. I would say that the manufacturers, a lot of them bought up other ones. That's where it kind of shifted. And I, I remember seeing this because I've talked to my... Um, my mom and my stepdad actually owned the first company with me. I talked to them about this in depth. And I said, it's almost like they will literally sell anything to anybody with a credit card. You don't even have to have any certifications. Like today, you, you could take your credit card and go buy a phone. Which is scary because we're, we're literally on-site chemical manufacturers. Like <laughs> uh, Some of the components that we mess with, when not mixed properly, which we see this all the time, yeah. as we have, can be very detrimental to your health. Like. Uh, and then on top of that, if you apply them, let's say you apply them correctly. Now there's a lot of codes and stuff that, that he, a lot of these subcontractors, like fire code, a lot of these foams have to be coated in these attics, like with a fire protective coating, whether it be an ignition barrier or whether it be a thermal barrier. Matter of fact, I would say 95% of the foams that are put into houses now that are supposed to have coating don't. That would probably be my major the complaint that I get when I come across a job when I'm looking for a lot of these home inspectors when they go in there and, and I've gave them a lot of intimescent light. So now they can actually identify when it's not there uh, because it is a fire risk. It's to point that light and just look. And this is probably one of the major problems is they do not use a lot of your subcontractors, even though they know they legitimately know that it's supposed to be on there. And the chemical manufacturers have printed out a lot of paperwork that it basically just reads a lot of jargon that makes you think that you can, you can, you can put it inside there. Well, the problem is when you go into some of the engineering, the actual tests, which I do a lot of at QAI and Intertech here in, in San Antonio, it shows that you have to have coatings on these things. And so, yes, foam is a great product, 
only done properly, like in conjunction with the whole, not just looking at the spray foam itself, look at the whole building as a structure, the, how it operates. And that's when it's, you know, that's when it's done well. Well, and, and that's, that's a really important factor because, I mean, when we look at insulation, our value is actually the lowest quotient that we care about. We're looking at it for its air barrier quotient, its pressure quotient, what it does in terms of vapor, moisture transmission. Our value is secondary. I can get our value through stuffing rabbits in a wall if I really wanted to, right? And that, yeah, and this that, is true. And that may be one of the reasons is because insulation as an industry didn't take a lot of thought for bat insulation and even blown insulation. And a lot of those folks have moved into spray foam thinking it's just another R value. And it's the most complicated R value that you could do. And the benefits from it are much, are much more broad, but also the deficiencies. So before, while we're talking about this, let's get it off the table right now. Can you do closed cell foam inside a wall in the South? <laughs> That's a twisted question. Uh, <laughs> I know it is. <laughs> it depends. Okay, so if we're talking about freezers, sub-zero, climate controlled, any of those things, yes. It, this is what's funny. I hear this a lot. Open cell spray foam. A lot of people think that you can't use it in North, and I, I don't want to get too deep into that, down that rabbit trail, but ultimately open cell was actually created in Canada. Mm -hmm. I mean, it literally started where your moisture drive is all the way from the inside out, not outside in. I guess to answer your question, uh, I've only, I typically like to use open cell in all residential structures inside the exterior walls mm -hmm. and inside the roof decking for reasons of that we've never really built with vapor barriers. I think this, when I go into classes and we talk about these things and they go, oh yeah, see here, this is, I see Halvec and, you know, Tyvek and Housewrap. I'm going, and I carry a piece of it around for this reason. It says, you do realize that Tyvek is not, not a, a vapor, barrier. not a vapor, barrier, it's a drainage plane. And, and especially once we punch 10,000 holes mm -hmm. in it, I said, so my, I know there's going to be a certain amount of vapor diffusion through that wall, and we handle a lot of it like with what we call the latent load in some of the units. Mm -hmm. Like That's how I want to handle some of that moisture that I know is going to come through that wall. It's using closed cell inside an exterior wall, and I don't want to get, out, get too crazy with this, but it's just not something that I've, I've only ever seen issues with when I have a true vapor barrier, which is closed cell, which the perm rating is yep. less than one once you get it every inch and a half. And then if you back it up with a kind of a not bubble-proof Tavik house wrap up against the backside of it, I've only seen issues that have come from that. And I can't speak to every case because every house is different, but the stuff that I've come across this far has been issues with that. Well, I can tell you that the city of Beaumont is the, the classroom for whether or not you want to do closed cell inside your walls. When the foam industry kind of came to that, it actually came out of a group out of Lake Charles, and they were closed cell guys. They were marine spray foam contractors okay. who got into residential spray foam. And they, the first three companies in Beaumont only, only did close cell and that's it. And this is from late 1990s, about 1998. And I have been to dozens upon dozens of homes, typically really, really nice ones. Cause remember in 2005, how much it cost to spray foam a house? It was like <laughs> crazy pricing. That's the days when you could make money. That's <laughs> right. That's when you have profit margin. Um, and those houses are just absolutely riddled with termites because that close cell foam created a vapor barrier inside the interspatial interspatial space interspatial space. Excuse me, I about I almost made <laughs> a that three times faux fast. pas there. Um, so we know that we don't want to do that. But then we have other parts of the house. You meant you referenced the wall and the roof. So let's talk about cold floors. Let me let me mention one thing before. Sure. It's funny you said that we back before spray foam ever became, it was always big in the commercial roofing side, which is where spray foam started. Um, we actually, my family are poultry farmers, which is kind of originally how I started getting involved or even around this stuff. Once I went to Alaska and I found, oh, this is cool stuff. It, if it works in this extreme, it has to work in the other extreme. Variables may have to change, the, assembly, the wall assembly may have to change, but essentially it does what it's as far as with stopping heat transfer off the wall. So it's okay. Well, my family are chicken farmers. So I said, hey, if I know our biggest part of our poultry farm is gas, right? In the winter, we burn gas like it's going out of style. I said, what if we spray foamed on the exterior of these curtains, like, and essentially kept all that cool air as those fans are sucking everything across the chicken house? I said, it keeps all the air inside that what we, what we already heated. Man, that would be a great idea. So I actually got one of my family to actually let me do a chicken house. And it's funny you said that about termites and bugs, because that was one of the first things that we found early on is the bugs love the close cell yeah. because I wasn't, I knew there's a lot of vapor inside poultry houses because they use the old, scare, old school air conditioners. Mm -hmm. They have the water dripping Swap down coolers. it. Yep, mm -hmm. that's it. So I said, 
I said, man, the first one we did was with Closil. I said, I've got another idea. I said, what if we were okay with moisture getting in through or making its way through this? They said, what are you talking about? I said, well, let's go with maybe a, a middle of the road open to Closil, like a 1.2, 1.1 pound. So the perm rating's not less than one, but it gets us to where it'll absorb a certain amount. And sure enough, that's actually how we founded Tyson's Pilgrim Pride and all those guys. We started spraying an open cell foam so that we could actually, when the water comes across it and they missed it, it'll actually absorb into it and they can spray another product on top of it that would actually form like a crust that would keep the bugs actually yeah. from. So closed cell was the original. My going, oh, wow, bugs will eat through this. <laughs> like hmm. Anyway. Yeah, no. And, and it's, it's interesting because we've, we have gotten into going back to corn. I call them corn cribs because they still call them corn cribs, but they're mm -hmm. way bigger than a corn crib, right? Um, it's, it's where they're keeping all their rice and their corn, especially through deep east Texas. And they, a lot of the original plants had close cell spray foam, and those the, the, they were stick built or even the metal they rusted or termites. Then we've gone back. What they were they wanted to not do foam at all, and these are very complicated. Lots of rafters, lots of metal buildings, and open cell is how we got through that. But we did have to coat the outside. Because then outside of the waterborne insects, there's all the insects that are just relational to agriculture and feed. And they would find all these ways to bore their hole into the, to the open cell. Not like, just like they would a piece of wood or paper or anything else. So it was, it's interesting kind of dynamic. And now, yeah. you're, why didn't you guys just let the chickens get cold in the wintertime and pre-freeze them? <laughs> that wasn't what you wanted to do. No, no, no. That's <laughs> a, unfortunately, that's not how you make money at the chicken business. <laughs> Which that again, there's no way to, I mean, <laughs> back then there, you could actually make money. Now it's, it's so hard in the poultry industry. So we're talking about cold. Let's talk about cold floors. Cause that's yeah. where we use close cell, right? Mm -hmm. So why don't you um, do me a favor, uh, define what a cold floor means to you. And is it a solid rule or do the rule, are the rules variable? So cold floors are typically what we call overhangs. Um, a, a lot of people refer to them as different things. Cold floor to me, it just separates a boundary between a conditioned space up top any non-conditioned space below. Um, I think even up north, they call them cantilevers, which is a common word. Yeah. So it's funny because when you have an estimating company, people call all these different things. They have so many names for them. And none of them are actually like, quote unquote, like the right name yeah. for the actual product. But uh, cold floor, like I said, that's an area that you, wanna, you don't want to pr protect for sure, especially under bonus room floors, because most people don't put in garage, insulated garage doors yeah. a lot of times, which is crazy because... It's such, it's so little cost as opposed to, not that that's going to save the inside, but it does help to keep a lot of heat from going inside there up into those cold floors. So. And the most common cold floor that people would say, of course, we have crawl spaces. A crawl space yep. is a cold floor. Correct. Um, very, very large one, but um, we build on slabs here, the vast majority of our structures. So they're like, oh, well, I, don't, I don't have any cold floors. Most common cold floor, of course, is the ceiling of your garage. When you have that bonus room or that game room or that kid's room, and especially on production homes, where they have the option for that room over that garage, but they don't purchase at the time. And then they go retrofit it later on. And that water vapor accumulates in that garage and it rises up because hot, wet, hot, wet air wants to go to dry, cool air. Um, and then, then we have to drop the ceiling of the garage. We're dealing with that in um, uh, Baytown right now. Especially, to... Yeah, especially when you've got cars, gasoline, you've got all sorts of things inside of there that can emit or can create some type of moisture in that garage. Exactly. So yeah, we definitely want to go our typical... Um, prognosis for that is go with closed cell underneath those cold floors for sure. The one that I see missed the most is when you have a um, a room over a back patio or a room over a porch entry in the front of the house. You know, because people are, are starting to catch on to rooms over garages, but you know, we'll go into a house pre drywall and look and, and and check out the ceiling over the front porch. There's a there's a hallway or a bedroom or something up there, and they missed it. Yep. Or like I said, if you have a, um, a covered back patio with a game room on the top of it, the back patio ceiling is not done properly. We see this a lot of times in the new construction process because it's just poor planning. Like the spray farmers going in, we have to have something to spray to there, like either garage common walls, garage cold floors, because, and we all know this, bonus rooms don't typically take up the entire garage, right? Mm -hmm. There's going to be some. So how do you connect the dots there? And a lot of houses we go into, actually, it's just poor planning going, hey, this, during the building process, nobody connected the dots to these things like a like a front porch and such. So, yeah, most definitely. And then that box out window on the second floor because they want to have some type of architectural change. So they build a little box out window, and what ultimately goes in that box out window is a 
seat or a bench or a mold or a yeah a cabinet <laughs> that fills up with mold and um i'm dealing with one that on a, it's on the southern face of the house it's just getting just rifled all the kids toys and everything just covered in mold and they're like well shouldn't the, the builder have caught this and i'm like well it's not code right to do open cell or closed cell is not code correct mm-hmm. that's correct and the only part that code concerns himself with this insulation is two things, R value and air barrier, right? But the continuous air barrier is not one thing di- dictated by a single product. It's the, the culmination of all the products put together. So do you think that you can actually achieve a grade one air barrier with that insulation? Yeah, well, it's hard. It's very tough to do. Okay. But is it possible? Yes. Is it bubble proof? No. no. And, and so I will tell you that I have seen grade one air barriers with bat insulation. The problem is bat doesn't stay in that exact same position. Correct. So we're looking for a permanent air barrier or semi-permanent. Um, that's where spray foam comes in. Um, let's talk about pricing real fast on this because we did our whole podcast um, series last time on pricing. Um, spray foam is commodity price, correct? It feels like it's a commodity, especially <laughs> in, the, uh, in the new construction world. Mm-hmm. This is because it goes back to what we talked about, you, you need no training, zero. You just need a credit card. And that's what we're fighting up against constantly. Is there as much stolen product on the foam side as there is on the bat insulation side? And for folks that don't know, there is a large chunk of the industry in insulation that is deals in stolen product. Mm-hmm. The number of times that I can't count them on my fingers and toes that, we have, that I've seen prosecution or, yes, there is, there is the home deep. I don't know if I can say Home Depot on here, but maybe the Home Depot of stolen goods of in the market. Yes, it happens quite often where um, that's one of the reasons why we put monitors on our machines is because when it stops and turns on, it automatically sends us text messages. You can't you can't pump anything out of it. But it's, it's one thing to have a stolen bag of bad insulation. How do you have a stolen 50 gallon drum of chemicals? It's actually pretty easy. Maybe even. <laughs> really? Yeah. So the machines will stop at their normal stores, wherever they're going to stop every morning. And it's coordinated that they can, they can stop in a certain area where actually the business owners don't mind. They're not going to pay attention to what's going on. And they just run their hoses through. Because a lot of these have small doors where you can just run the hoses out of them. And in a lot of cases, they can actually just fill the compressors up before they leave the, the shop, which is very common. And it has enough air to pump at least five to 10 gallons. Well, you think of it, five to 10 gallons can't be that much. Well, yeah, in, in the world of spray foam, if they do that a couple of times, you know, six, seven, eight times, they've got a full set of foam, which equates to $2,500 to $3,500. Like, yeah. That's it doesn't take long. Yeah. No. Um, it's actually way more profitable to do that than, because fiberglass bats, I mean, hell, you need, a, you need a dump truck to be able to hold enough bats to make a difference. I see. So it, it's the difference between, it's, it's to bring a drug reference. It's a lot easier to, to, to <laughs> smuggle cocaine than weed just because weed takes us so much more space. That's correct. Right? I mean, Curtis, you agree with that, right? Oh, oh yeah. That's okay. my experience. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, smack is easier to transport than coke. So, yes. Um, so, um, let's go back. I'm going to rewind to the, the thermal coating. This is a, we talked about this. I don't know how many times you and I have spoken about this. And first off, what? average temperature does spray foam catch fire at well there's a couple different things melt point burn point it's roughly let's just go back to the chemical reaction itself when we're putting it in it's roughly around 220 to 260 degrees depending on what materials again formulas have changed a lot in the last probably 10 years or so because now we're putting a lot more water which means because they're trying to stretch these foams to get Instead of a high half pound foam, they're trying to get a 0. 0.4, 0. 0.3, yeah. so they'll go further Yield. and they can sell. Yeah. They can sell to their their consumers. When it's it's funny, those foams, none of them yield because the the processing windows become so tight that you have to be very very skilled to actually understand how to maximize those foams. So it's a mute point. It's really it's this race to the bottom, so to speak, with the spray foam manufacturers. And the reason I say that is because we're putting a lot more water, which means we have to put a lot more catalyst packages and fire retardancies and all these things. Um, one is the actual catalyst package, which is highly flammable, combustible. Uh, as far as the burn, you're looking at probably around six, 500 and something to 600 degrees, roughly depending on our phone that we're talking about. Once it catches fire, phone will burn. Like it's, 
yeah. the amount of times if you've ever seen the the actual testing done some of your ac 377s and 376s when you see it done you're like wow i think that's probably something that every spray farmer needs to see to see actually a fire hit it and see what it does because it doesn't take long like it's a great product it's class a but again it will burn so but let's be honest roof decking burns at a lot lower temperature correct so if this is not the house is not more fire prone because it's spray foam. That's right. So we don't apply fire retardant coating to our rafters. So why are we, re- that, that will burn at less than 200 degrees. So then why are we being required to re- apply a fire retardant coating to something that burns at 600 degrees? Plastic. I mean, you know, if firefighters, my business partner's a firefighter, they need to know in plastics and because of what it emits as it's burning. Uh, with that coating on top of there, gives you a lot more time to be able for the firefighters to get there before it becomes a massive polyurethane fire or Got plastic. It. Okay, so it's it's really about the the accumulation. It's it's about what is burning, not what temperature it burns at. Correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it's funny when you burn polyurethanes or plastics when they go to a when the firefighter goes to the fire. This is very unique in that the actual the all the damage you would typically see on a smoke fire would be up, right? Mm-hmm. You see it on top it's of down. It. It's down. It actually. Some of your, the bromites and some of the things inside of our foams will actually create this yellow. I mean, one, the smell is so awful. Like you just can't get it out of your clothes ever. Like you throw them away. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's what's in the actual product, the fire that's more important than anything. Got it. Okay. So just to be clear, and I'm looking at the camera now, spray foam does not make your house catch fire. Let's get that out there. It does not make it more fire prone either. Some people will say because, oh, it's an enclosed envelope, therefore, it's going to hold the fire at a higher rate. I would say that every house under a higher pressure is going to high, hold fire and temperature at a different rate than a house that is leakier. Of course, if that's why they cut holes in the roof to relieve the pressure, smoke, fire, give it a place to burn through. It's funny you said that. They're actually, when you do spray foam, there's a lot of people, a lot of spray foamers out there that do not know this. They're, you're supposed to have a pressure relief door inside there because of this reason, because of a firefighter goes up there and with us having a sealed uh, attic assembly and they go in there and they can this the possibility for that blowing or the backdrafting can happen so yep in um in Atlanta we do that so on yep. our on our foam attics in Atlanta we have a pressure relief door there's it's a calculation per it's actually not that it's basically every disconnected attic space um has to have it and they're not that big um they're only six inch doors so very cheap very inexpensive but the manufacturers that's just one more thing that they don't want to let us know that we're supposed to, in a lot of cases, we're supposed to be doing it. There. I've never seen that done here. No, it's not Zero. required here. No. Um, I've seen it done in some marine applications, and that's, that's about it. But that's more shipbuilding and things like that. That's mm. our Galveston. So, yeah. Yeah. So, um, that being said, so when I walk up into an attic and I'm looking for the fire retardant coating, is it always a visible coating? If you have the right lights. I can see it because I've been around the game yeah. for a long time. Uh, but to the naked eye, it would be kind of tough to see. Yeah. And we carry those lights. We, we know how to look for it. Mm-hmm. But there are those, there are products out there that say they do not need to have one applied because it is mixed internally. Is that true? 100% not true. Okay. Never been made. Never. It's funny. This is. Because it's like a thing. Oh, man. My sales guys, this is one of the things we combat this with. And uh, when we're talking to a customer, I say, hey, look. If I would hope that you would do your due diligence, and this is weird for us because we're telling them to get other prices. Like I would want you to do your due diligence and go get other prices for this, just to make sure because we care about the safety of your family. Make sure that two things happen: one, they get rid of the old fiberglass insulation, but two, make sure that this coating, if bar none, even if you don't use us, make sure this coating is on there. When they start asking questions, I go, "Well, don't. It's not mixed in there because I do a lot of the the formulating and stuff for some of these guys." It's never been. And if it is, this is the beauty of it. If it is, tell them to send you the paperwork saying it is. Mm-hmm. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. And so what's funny is when they call the other contractor back or subcontractor, they'll say, hey, I see that you gave me this price. And they say, hey, well, what about this coating that's supposed to be on the phone? And all of us as subcontractors, even the guys who don't, they have no clue about it, they know that people have talked about it. And, they go, and right then it just backs them up. It crawfishes them back. And they go, oh, well, I can give you a price for that. Well, then the customer's like, wait a minute, why wouldn't you give me the price for that up front? Because that's pretty important. It know? is. So anyway, but yeah, that's, that's kind of the gist on there. Well, and I've seen many times where it's an option. They make it optional, yeah. especially out in the county. So like Curtis, we have a project right now 
and it's out in Montgomery. And I'm looking at the phone quote and, um, and the first phone guy, of course, it's included. They're following our specifications to say that it must be included. The second one, the homeowner found online and it says optional fire retardant coating. I was like, that's, that's not, there's no, that's not optional. And he goes, Oh no, it's not, it's not required. I'm like, no, it is required. It's a manufacturer requirement. It's not, but the thing is, that's not in the code. It's not in the that's correct. building code. So building code, it's, uh, I don't know. I'll just go 2015 IBC is uh, 2603.4 is all polyurethanes, all plastics need to be covered by 15 minute thermal barrier. And typically in our walls, that's pretty easy because we have drywall. Yeah. That's our 15 minute. The problem is, is when we get in the attic spaces and we have what we quote unquote call ignition sources, which is your furnace, gas, your hot water heaters and such. When we have that, that right there identifies that we need to be coated by an ignition barrier. So there's two different coating types, ignition and then thermal. Some of the manufacturers, you can spray less millage and get the ignition, which is typically, uh, typically it's going to be six minutes and some change. Mm -hmm. So, or you need to put a 15 minute thermal barrier, which gives you the 15 minutes. That right there tells me if we have any gas furnace up there, we automatically need ignition. Well, the manufacturers have performed these tests. We call it the oxygen depletion test or the modified AC-377. What they've done is essentially they go over to QAI and, and Intertech, which are two of the major testing facilities in Texas, which we actually test for most all the polyurethanes across the U.S. When they do this, they build this room and they seal it up completely airtight. And when I say airtight, I've sprayed hundreds of these rooms. Um, and they take and they actually put a corner burn test in there. Well, what do we know if a room's airtight and we've got a, a fire that it dies out? Correct. To this day, and I'm probably going to get shot if a manufacturer sees this, but <laughs> nonetheless, uh, I have yet to see a test fail. Like, and it's one company that does this called Priest and Associates. Um, they do all the engineering. I think there's actually another uh, group that they're using now, but for 10, 10, 12 years, that's all that did it. Once you actually pull up the actual test, and you see that there's some requirements in order to not have to put that ignition or that thermal barrier. The thermal barrier is required regardless. Like if you have more storage space than 32 square feet or a, a vertical door has to be put on there. No questions asked. Doesn't matter what you got. But the ignition barrier is the one the manufacturers didn't want. Hey, that's one more cost that's going to keep us from, uh, that's almost another market barrier for us. Mm -hmm. And once you read that test and the actual, the fire testing and you see that, oh, in order for this to comply, my attic has to be totally sealed, completely. And we all know this. If you go in and let's say you air sealed all the can light covers, top plates, penetrations, all those things on a foam house, how do we get air into the attic specifically? Don't. That's one of the ways. Oh, we've got ductwork leakage. So mm -hmm. you want to plan on ductwork leakage to pull out your. It's only ductwork leakage when the system is running, it's not constant ductwork. Correct. Leakage. Yeah. And so now you see where the manufacturers have kind of hid that into the jargon you'll never see that on when you ask for like a for example a a marshal or if any any inspector is going to ask for hey give me the, the paperwork they're going to show them what we call like an ac there's an esr there's a couple different documents for it it will never have that fire testing in there that says it needs to be sealed they will only say you cannot put an ignition barrier based on these items well if you'd never look at that test you never would know mm -hmm. and so for us we know we can't go back in and air seal all those things across there in order to comply with that test so that we don't have to put the coating because it defeats the purpose of what we're trying to like to get yep. air into the attic space. Unless you want to put a duct in a return, well, then that brings in a whole other ballgame because now you have to have it on there because now you've got occupied space. Yes. There is a code for that, though, right? Yeah. Because we had a house that we did last year and um, we wanted to put a supply in a return in the attic. And Lee Curtis, a guy, the mm -hmm. toner, the toner I, I work with, said, no, uh, we can't do the, the supply and return in there because it doesn't have the fire retardant yeah. coating. Yeah, because now you're giving a fire what it needs, yes. essentially. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's a, that's always a, a, a tricky prophecy because we, we do still manage the, the indoor climate of our enclosed attics, mostly because we still have humidity and stack effect that will rise up into the space. Aspiration of moisture from cooking and the occupants and doors opening and closing, air conditioning. So while we're talking about the attic, um, and, and Curtis and I did this on a project in um, Braze Heights, uh, beautiful house, ultra modern, um, and they were having humidity issues. So we were going to convert the attic, attic conversions, which you and I have this conversation on a very regular basis. And I remember 
telling the clients we're going to have to replace your air conditioning system. They're like, why? Like, well, first off, we're removing the heat load. So there's an existing heat load in the attic that affects the second floor and parts of the first floor. So the AC systems you have right now will have to be resized. Okay, so that's the equipment for sizing. Like, well, then we're also going to have to resize the ductwork. So there's all your ductwork. I said, but more importantly, I can't leave this open combustion 80% AFUE or 80% annual fuel utilization um, expenditure. Um, you cannot have an open combustion appliance. So it's the same thing for the water heater. I can't have an open combustion water heater. So those are two codes. We have a plumbing code for the water. We have technically the ventilation of the plumbing is part of the HVAC code. Then we have the furnace, which is HVAC code. And then we have the insulation. But those three do not exist on the same page. So you technically can install spray foam. You can enclose an attic with open combustion appliances because there's not one uniform code that says you can't, even though we know it's an extremely bad idea. It goes back to a manufacturer thing. The manufacturer of the actual units like train, standard road, mm -hmm. all those guys highly, um, highly recommend against that. So, yeah. But they just started doing it. No, they, just, they only recommend against it. They don't say that you absolutely can't. Yep. Um, so, and I remember, Curtis, we had, I had to go meet with you and the homeowners to go over that because it, it was a big part of the expense. It was a lot of expense, yeah. Yeah. And it was absolutely necessary. Um, and we've gone into projects where they, I have a, I have, every year I always get a project where they keep having puppies die and they don't know why. And then we get there, spray foam house, furnaces and water heater, dropping carbon monoxide, killing the dogs, like just really harming those little puppies. Cause it drops to the ground. We're fine. Cause we're, you know, five, six feet up. They're swimming around in it on the first 18 inches of the floor. So that's not a, not an awesome thing to deal with. Watch your toddlers, watch your toddlers, watch your oh, old yeah. people, right? Um, babies, old people and pets. So they're the ones who really are susceptible to it. So, um, but that's a frustrating thing for me because then when I go to court, um, and I'm supporting people, I can't say there's a law that actually says you can't do that. Um, and codes are law codes are law. Let me say this to the camera codes are law. Um, so that's why we settle most code issues in the courts. Um, so that's a, I see that all the time. It's surprising. It's a sticky spot. I actually had a, um, a friend of mine call from Oklahoma the other day. was with a customer that he had just gotten out of a, a phone call with the customer with his HVAC guy. And the HVAC guy, oh, yeah, you can spray foam inside the attic. It's 80% furnace. Well, the, the guy was telling him, no, you can't. And when he called me hoping I'd have the, the sword to go into the <laughs> battle, and I said, unfortunately, man, it's, it's not. There's been so... Uh, it's a, it's a dicey spot, uh, because a lot of HVAC guys, they're right. You can, they need to refer back to their manufacturer because the paperwork and a lot of them now in, within the last five or six years now have said they will not stand behind. They're not wanting, they're, they're trying to retrain a lot of their HVAC guys to not do with 80%. But we've ha also had that transition period, right? Where they went in and found, they call it a fan in the can. Mm -hmm. You've seen it where uh, they try to pull fresh air and actually dump it near the combustion or near the combustion chamber. And so it's been a big deal for the last five, or, five to seven years, but it's now finally the manufacturers are starting to. They're starting to come around now. And if I call most HVAC manufacturers and ask them for a letter, they'll give it to me, right? Like says, hey, we do not recommend this. Um, I'm dealing with a house over in Tanglewood right now. They hired, they've actually hired two other building science people, which there's not a whole lot of building science people in, in around to begin with. And they both have come in and said, okay, um, the house was foamed during a, um, a remodel at the very last date. So they chose, they chose at the, at the last minute to go ahead and spray foam, left all the insulation on the attic floor. So I'm already dealing with a thermal flywheel, um, effect, but they left all the combustion furnaces there. And so now we have on each furnace two, six inch intakes with it. They're actually creating a convection loop because there's a six inch intake coming for this furnace. And then there's another one coming for the furnace next to it. And what's it doing is creating a convection loop off of the roof. The hottest, wettest air is coming through that giant attic and it's just soaking wet. I look up and all the um, open cell, which doesn't have the retardant coating on it, doesn't have it. It's just droplets of water coming off of the rafters and everything. And that stuff is super wet. So part of our recommendation was, I don't even know if we can apply that, that application to the foam when it's been this wet for this long. 
So we're going to have to core sample it, right? Then we're going to, we may have to scratch it out. Someone was trying to tell them they can just spray, spray a cap of closed cell on top of the open cell. Mm. I'm like, everyone get out of here. There's like, <laughs> you have too many bad cooks in this kitchen. And that is most definitely a shad job right there. Be like, and in fact, I said, I will recommend the appropriate style of trade that can go over and do the testing. Then you have to dry it out. Then you'll have to apply the coating. And then we're going to have to do all the HVAC replacement. Some of the best advice I ever heard on projects like that are just, just quit. Like, <laughs> don't, don't do anything else. Like, yeah, like just, let people get to where they, because I have seen this where people compound problems. Like when they don't, for example, I see this all the time where they leave the fiberglass insulation on the ceiling and the guys come and spray, they leave the soffit open, a number of things. And I, I always like thinking about stuff, just, li- just simple logic. So it's like, do you know what kind of like this is? Or so let me, let me tell you kind of what I feel like this is like. It's kind of like riding down the interstate with your AC blasting and your windows rolled down. Like, yep. Really, what's the point? Like, you're still letting the moist air from outside in. There's a lot of things that are occurring during that. And so, yeah, it's, I see a number of things with this. Uh, but ultimately, with that sort of situation, you would want to first, like you said, core, like to make sure, one, we have to send it off to get checked because we need to know what kind of foam it is. We mm-hmm. need to know the mixture so that because different spray foams require different coatings, um, such as the intimescent, the uh, thermal barriers. There's lots of, even there, there's a lot of brands that aren't approved over other foams. This is why it's, it's so important to know the foam you're using because it's only approved with a certain amount of coatings. Like it's not approved. It's not like you got one paint that just goes over everything. It's not like that. And so, yeah, the, you need to make sure what kind of foam it is. Once we establish if it's dry, if it's good quality on ratio foam, then the potential for drying it out, if it is a little wet, then we could go back in, find the right product and coat over it. It wouldn't, wouldn't be a problem at all. So, but again, sometimes the best advice is just stop and get somebody in there that knows what's going on. Exactly right. And, and just so everyone's aware, um, well, on my legal projects, when I need someone that's really, really fine tuned on foam chemical makeup, Shad is, works on those kind of projects with us. So with a lot of the, the, the finite conversation that you're having is you're every day. These are the kind of yeah. considerations you take every single day, but they also come into play legally later on when we have to evaluate someone else, which we're dealing with on a house in college station right now. They talk to you oh yeah, and they didn't hire you. Right. <laughs> so then they spray foam the house, the spray foam mix went in wrong and just started off gassing at a ridiculously high rate. Um, they call you up. You're like, Hey, I, you didn't hire me, right? Like I told you all this stuff. So I remember I was watching a movie with my daughter when I saw the, the actual the message come in uh, or the phone call. Yeah. I knew it was weird and it was at a weird time. And I was like, man, I, for some reason I walked out of the theater and literally answered the call and I said, hey, what's going on? And when he told me who it was, I said, oh, just my, you know, it filled yeah. my stomach because I knew right then he's not calling me for any other reason, but there's something going wrong. And I knew his wife was pregnant because I got to meet him. Like these aren't, when I go to calls like this, like we truly are trying to help people. I'm not just in there slinging some product to you. Like we're looking at a lot of things when we, it takes us at least an hour and a half to two hours when I go to evaluate somebody's home. So yeah, we're not the typical insulator. It's going to go in there and 15 minutes later, you got a price. Like we're really looking at a lot of things. So I get to know these people. And when he said that, I go, oh, man. And so I actually went up there the next day just because I knew it was serious. And that was actually on a sat. that was on a Sunday. Yeah, so it was it, it was a very serious problem. We had to scratch it all out. Um, then we still had off gassings. We had to we had to seal it all or encapsulate it. It was a um, a lot of work to get that done. Had they done it right to begin with, and they still had all the existing AC equipment. So even after we get the AC the foam right, we had to address all the insulation that was still on the ground and all the air conditioning equipment. And it was um we're still not even sure like. I'm not sure what if it was strictly, I mean, I think they sent it off to some of the, the yeah. pieces to get a, a testing done on it, but uh, it could very well, it's, it could very well be a, a manufacturing issue. It could very well be part of a manufacturing, part of the applicator issue. That's why it's important to everyone that's listening to this. It's important to know who you're dealing with, like your spray foam manufacturer or your, your actual contractor. I know on our equipment, we have special things that allow us, once it gets off ratio, it shuts the machine down. It will not allow my guys to put foam in the house. It's not on ratio. Yep. And then it instantly sends text message to us and all uh, their supervisors so that we can actually get it fixed. And then it clears it to go back to work. So. so speaking about those contractors, there's a big, big difference 
and spray foaming a new house and a remodel. I mean, you could not have two metrics farther apart. And the new homes are easy, right? Typically, if, if you're looking for something to spray against, might be a problem. Um, but other, or otherwise, it, maybe you do close sell on the wrong place. We could figure that kind of stuff out. Retrofitting foam is really difficult. And Curtis sees it, and I see it. I, get, I got one this weekend where there are people on social media, and they're advertising retro foam, where they're going to go into a wall and just foam that out. So where are you at with retro um, foam applications? Again, it goes back to every house is different. There is so many different cases where there's some attic spaces that we can't get to, that we need to cut sheetrock to get into. Uh, there's lots of vaulted ceilings that may add a lot more load onto them if we can't get to those vaults. It's, I always That's a, a conversation we have with the customer of going, hey, how deep do you want to get into this? Because we really need to do this. And that's where it goes back to kind of what we were talking about earlier, setting the expectations of going, Here's what we can get for this amount. This is what we can do and get to this amount of efficiency inside of this home. Um, but you're right, 100%. It is a, is a completely different ballgame than new construction. Uh, my guys, actually, it's funny. It's almost when they see a new construction job on it, which there's not a lot of people that will, that will spend that kind of money with us. But <laughs> when we do find it, uh, I have customers that have been with us for a long time. And they don't care. They would, they would rather pay to get it done because they know when they walk away from my house that it's done right. Um, but my, my guys are just like, it's almost like vacation that week. Cause it's so yeah. much easier than what we do in existing homes because you're crawling through tight spots. And again, this is why it takes two hours from when we go into a home with a homeowner, because I'm not just going to look in there, you know, and you know, oh, it looks good with this about this much money. No, I'm going to crawl in every piece of your attic. And a lot of cases when I come out of there or my sales guys, we're sweat, like we're rolling. And says, hey, give me a minute. Let me clean up, you know, to get myself back together. And they're just amazed at, that we actually crawled through there. I'm going, well, how else would I tell you what's wrong if I don't crawl through here? That's, it's funny. We do that in crawl spaces, too. People are amazed that we go under crawl spaces and we come out because we have suits and we're muddy and stuff. And one customer goes, well, the last three guys, none of them went under there. I go, well, how are they telling you what's wrong with your house then? Yeah. It's, re it's really quite ironic. But uh, going back to that completely different animal uh the existing homes it's very complex you have to look at not just the spray foam look at the whole how are they using their home if it's uh you know depending on the type of culture of the family if they cook a lot which i know my wife's latino we cook all the time <laughs> um it, it does it matters because you're producing all that moisture all that heat um it, it just there's so many different parts of this so yeah you've you've got to think about that in your mind before you just start foaming a house which a lot of times we come into houses that have been done and they're, they're done wrong. So there may be some, some houses that you just can't do it on, right? Like, like certain roof pitches, you just can't get into it unless you, you know, cut the ceilings out. A good example, that's going to be a lot of historic structures where there's not right. that, that bond break. So if I was to open up the wall, there would be a two by six, let's say diagonal on the inside and two by six horizontal on the outside. That is the backside of my drainage plane. I am not going to spray foam against that. Because that expands and contracts, and also water comes through that down into the open cavities and drains out. So we won't insulate those structures. But if I could get to 100% of the plane, walls, the walls are a plane, the attic is a plane, crawl space is a plane. If I can get to 100% of them, there may be times where I do a sealed attic on top of non-insulated walls or sealed crawl space in a sealed attic. But what I won't do is go into a add-on and do half a wall and spray foam. And the other half is something else because there's a pressure dynamic. Even though the R value may have R13 on one side, R13 on the other, but the pressure dynamics are totally different. So it's a, uh, you have to think about it well beyond its R value. Let's talk about here in, here in Houston, we see this all the time, and I'm sure plenty of other parts of the country. If you've got like a 1950s ranch house here in Houston, uh, built in the 50s, those houses didn't have, plywood sheathing they may have just had tar paper they may have had um a, a gypsum product or you know various products they were using back in, in in the 50s and 60s so if somebody wants you to go back and retrofit or retro foam on the wall cavities in those houses what are you spraying against i mean do, do you tell them hey we can't spray against that old tar paper that old gyp or maybe there's even holes poked in it over the years how do, you, how do you treat that? A lot of cases, we've actually used Dow Blue Board to mm -hmm. create some type of substrate so we can seal it to give 
that break between the actual uh, mm. drainage plane. That's he's probably seen a lot more cases than me, but that's typically what we do. And to answer your question a while ago, there are houses that we just walk away from. I mean, there's a lot of cathedral vault ceilings and throughout that are, let's say if it makes up 70 or 80% of the home and you've got this little attic space with, and I've seen foamers foam those things and, that, and that's fine. But if you're only going to take care of you got to be realistic of what you're doing because when you start touching that house from a thermal envelope standpoint, what else are you doing? Like, and we've seen this and it's, man, so many of the historic homes, it's been operating, it's been operating fine for, you know, a hundred years. Well, once you start touching stuff in a home, it starts messing with other things, especially when we see some of the uh, balloon framing and some of those things. Mm-hmm. When you start spray foaming floors, people think you can just do stuff without uh, in- indirectly affecting the other parts of the house. And it just is not true. That's the things that we have to think through when we're evaluating a home. So, yeah, there was a, uh, a project I did on in Galveston Island on, in a neighborhood called Denver Court. And it's a really, really cool neighborhood. But most of the neighborhood started post 1900 storm. So it's about 1920s. Um, there's probably way more Galveston history, history you guys wanted, but um, they're really low to the ground, really wet, a lot of uh, warping wood floors everywhere. And um, there's a contractor who goes out there and does close cell retrofit, but he doesn't go, oh, he does the floor, but he stops before the bottom plates. So I know I have one of his houses when I get on call and I go out there and the bottom plates, they're just, they're like gum. I can rake them out. They're so wet because that moisture barrier stopped that vapor barrier and all that moisture that was rising up just doesn't go away. It just merely moves over and becomes a concentrated volume at the space that we didn't have. It'd be no different than if you sprayed an entire floor and left a three inch hole in the middle of it. It's a high pressure hose of of water vapor at that point. That's a hard job to fix because now the bottom plates are wrecked. So in the amount of termites and everything like that is really mice were are a big problem with that too because they like living in the wet areas because they eat the roaches and yeah it's a it's a compounding issue so yeah so just retroing foam is not it is not an easy thing it is a lot of the work that i end up doing on forensics going behind bad foam jobs you do too and i want to make it clear that is not a bad foam job that is a bad foam company job um because i still have to deal with i swear 2002 through 2005, bad information on spray foam on YouTube or the internet every single day. Yeah, we see it a lot too. It, and that's a lot of cases when we come into homes and they, man, you're, you're two times, you're two and a half, you're three times of what the other guys are. I said, well, you got to see what, when I walk out of this house, a couple of things, I own it. I make mm-hmm. sure it's fixed. Two, I answer my cell phone. Like, and for some people, if you've never met with, dealt with subcontractors, that won't make any sense to you. But people that have, that makes perfect sense to you. Because once we're done, I own it and I answer my phone. Like we're going to, our goal is to take care of you and fix the, the issues that we originally started to look at. But that's, again, it goes back to, you're right. It's not a bad phone job. Just choosing the right contractor. So speaking of that, and all these questions have been awesome. We've gotten into some really big technical things. If someone wants to get hold of you in the future, um, how do they how do they find you guys? Uh, you can reach us at www.fdinsulation.com. Okay. And you answer your cell phone, right? So I do. You're, you're I answer there. it. And hey, if if I answered it on a Saturday night with my two girls, <laughs> babies going to a movie, I'll answer it anytime. Yeah, most definitely. So what do you think our our, our biggest takeaway from from today is, Toner, in this conversation? Um, I, I would say, like, I'll reiterate one of the last statements I made. Most foam problems are not related to foam. They're related to foam installation. The complexity of that installation comes down to the, the competency of those that are applying it and the company itself. Um, it, has a, it, it is a great product um, because of its consistency, um, its coverage, its ease of coverage. Um, but that great product comes with great peril if not utilized properly. Um, so I would say that 99% of every new home that I have touched in the last 15 years is spray foam. And I don't, I'm not out of business because they've created all these problems. And these are people that could sue me till I die. I mean, could sue my kids, my grandkids. We do work for people who have lawyers on retainer, on retainer. So if I thought that that was a risky application on clients that could sue me to death, I would not use it. And we felt extremely confident with it forever. And we're finally seeing production builders come around and utilize it more common. 
uh, probably one of the biggest builders for that. Beezer does all foam. Newmark does all foam. Meritage. Meritage now does all foam. Um, so that's great. And, and I would tell folks, if you're going to go buy a production house, that should be one of the key elements you should be looking for is a spray foam application, mostly because I don't want a ventilated attic assembly. That's really where I want to see it done. I'd say if you're, you know, if, if you're not using shad, um, you should definitely have a third-party inspector who knows what to look for w- with your spray foam application. So, you know, like we use toner on our projects. And so, you know, before installation, they're kind of coming through and checking, make, making sure it's prepped and ready for installation. Then after installation, they're coming back and making sure that the job was done properly. So if, if, if you're not using shad, or maybe if you are using shad, you still call toner. Yeah, absolutely. But um, if you're not using shad, for sure, call toner. Uh, if you if you're here if you're here in Houston or the areas that he's serving, um, or if if you're not in one of those areas, get an expert who understands this stuff. Double check that job before it gets covered up, because once the drywall's up, once once everything's covered up, you know it's it, done. It's a crapshoot. It's yeah. done, and you'll find out in a few years whether it was done right or not. Yeah, exactly. it becomes a lot more expensive problem to handle once that's done. Yeah, and then we could talk about the retro. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, the cost of an inspection, a few hundred bucks, uh, versus the cost of long-term headaches, thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of dollars in attorneys and all the other stuff that goes into that, right? Exactly. So, all right, well, I appreciate you guys being back with us, or Thank you being so back much. with us today and you being with us for the first Absolutely. time. Absolutely, I enjoyed it. Yeah, enjoyed it. great, great meeting you. Um, and thank you guys for joining us uh, who are listening and watching. I uh, hope you'll join us next time. And just, just remember our simple illustration that we always mention during the podcast. The foundation of your project is proper planning. The left wall is your team. The right wall is communication. And the roof that protects it all is proper execution, which is what we've been talking about today. So please join us again on the Your Project Shepherd podcast. Thanks a lot.